Welcome. This is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 74 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is a review of compliance with the International Traffic and Arms Law and Regulations, or ITAR. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, a podcast focused on the legal and compliance industry. Before we get started, two points. First, please subscribe to our podcast and rate the podcast to help let other compliance professionals know about the podcast. Second, I wanted to mention that my law firm, the Volkoff Law Group, provides compliance program design and represents clients in securing licenses and handling regulatory matters before the U.S. State Department in connection with ITAR issues. If interested in our services in this area, please contact me at mvolkoff at volkofflaw. Well, uh, today I'm really happy to welcome uh, one of our new additions to uh, uh, the law firm, Colleen Herson, and I'm glad to have her uh, on the podcast. We've been planning this for a little while. Colleen joined our firm last June as of counsel, and she's very experienced, as you're about to find out, and we're very lucky to have her join us today. Welcome, Colleen. Thank you for uh, joining us today, and it's great to have you here. Thanks, Mike. I'm excited to be here and happy to talk ITAR with you all. And uh, Colleen, for our listeners, uh, please uh, explain your background and experience. As you'll find out, Colleen is a very experienced attorney and brings a lot of expertise uh, in this area. So go ahead, Colleen. Sure. Um, Well, I began my career with a D.C. law firm um, working on government contracts um, and international trade matters, Um, but I spent the bulk of my career working in-house, either on legal or compliance staff, um, helping companies navigate export control challenges, um, large companies and small companies. Um, So I've had an interesting perspective. I've been both legal counsel and on the compliance staff. So I understand the legal requirements, but I'm also um, well-versed with the challenges of running and operating a compliance program um, on the ground. So I think having both these experiences have served my clients well. And you've also had uh, experience in in terms of day-to-day functions of an ITAR program uh, for a particular uh, company. Um, what, what was that like? What did you think of that? Sure. I, I really enjoyed that. Um, I was working with the state department, um, almost on a daily basis, um, submitting licenses, um, figuring out exemptions and, um, handling even the more mundane record keeping. And I think, um, as legal professionals, it's really important, you know, we understand the law, but seeing how it works, um, on the ground with the compliance department, I found it really helpful. So, uh, Colleen, uh, not that we're, you know, back in law school and doing testing again and all of that, but uh, can you explain uh, ITAR and sort of the compliance regime in terms, because uh, it's obviously a very specialized area of the law, and it would be helpful just to get your perspective on it. Sure. Well, I think it's helpful if I start out by talking a little bit about why we have export controls generally. Um, and I'm going to apologize in advance. Some of this subject matter is a little dry. Um, but I think why we have export controls is one of the more interesting things. Um, yeah, it supports U.S. national security and foreign policy objectives. Um, export controls 
aim to prevent strategically sensitive items from falling in the wrong hands. Um, they preserve the advantage for our warfighters. Um, so it's really important um, from a policy perspective, I think, to understand this um, and understand why it is we do what we do. Um, now, the ITAR stands for the International Traffic and Arms Regulation. Um, and they're the set of rules that regulate defense exports and most defense exports. Um, so these are the rules that are um, implement the Arms Export Control Act, um, and they're administ administered by the Department of State, um, and specifically the Office of or the Directorate of Defense Trade Control, or DDTC. Um, there's a number of federal agencies that have their hands in export control. Um, State is a big one. The Department of Commerce, their Bureau of Industry and Security, is the other big one, and they handle uh, dual-use items and also some limited defense items. Um, but for today, um, it's, I think it's just important to know that there's other agencies that have their hands in export control, but for today, we're, we're going to talk about the ITAR and the Department of State. So there are, when you, and, and we often get questions where there are items that are dual use um, for military purposes, and then I guess there are just exclusive use, which tend to fall within, those are handled by the State Department, the DDTC. Is that is that a fair, I mean, we do get questions as to, is this dual use or is this just single use? Um, does that come okay. up in terms of that? Does that come up in sure. Okay. Yeah, it, yeah it, it comes up quite a bit. So defense items, so the items that are covered by the ITAR are those items and the services and technical data, and we'll get to this in a minute, um, exclusively associated with the items on the U.S. munitions list. So in recent years, um, as a part of export control reform, we've moved items from the U.S. munitions list over to commerce's list. Um, which is a little less restrictive. Um, and so that list it does handle dual-use technology and limited defense items, the items that have been moved over. Okay. Does that answer your question, Mike? Yep. No, no, no. That that, that definitely helps. So okay. then there's a uh, – and I remember learning this years ago, and, I mean, th the term itself, export, covers not just, hey, I'm putting something on a boat and shipping it to somebody overseas. Um, the term is is a broader term. Uh, and can you give us, give our listeners sort of a feel for, for what is covered? Sure. That, that's a good point. Um, the term export is a lot broader uh, than most people might think under the ITAR. So an export takes place when you send or take any controlled items and that's including information or know-how outside the U.S. or to a foreign national wherever located. So putting a tank on a freight container bound for Saudi Arabia is obviously an export. Um, but so is sharing blueprints for that same tank with a Saudi national employee of a U.S. company right here in the U.S. Um, and that's what we call a deemed export. Um, and this is a really important concept, I think, for our listeners to understand. Um, sharing controlled data with foreign nationals, even while in the U.S., um, can be an export um, and require a license or the application or of a relevant exemption. Um, and this can be very challenging for U.S. companies, especially those with international operations 
uh, or those with uh, large numbers of foreign national employees. So if I have an employee, a foreign national working at my company, and I'm in the United States, I'm in Connecticut, let's say, and I give them access to blueprints for a defense item, you're saying that would be a violation of ITAR? If there is no license in place or a relevant exemption that applies, that could be an unauthorized export. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so a lot of companies um, have some issues with this. You know, it's never, it's never fun to tell an employee, you can't work on that project because you're not a U.S. person. Um, and here's probably where we should explain where U.S. person, what a U.S. person is under the ITAR. Okay. Um, so a U.S. person isn't just a U.S. citizen. Um, a U.S. person is considered a U.S. citizen, a permanent resident, or there are certain classes of uh, refugees and asylees that also have U.S. person status. Um, but who is not a U.S. person would be someone who is here on an H-1B visa, um, student visas, um, fiancé visas, those, those kinds of things. Um, those don't make you a U.S. person. A U.S. person. Um, those who are dual citizens, who have U.S. citizenship, I mean, they're also a citizen of another um, country. Those persons are U.S. citizens, are U.S. persons under the ITAR. So a permanent resident, so a green card holder, um, a U.S. green card holder would be considered a U.S. person because they're a permanent resident. Am I right with that? Correct. Or no? Okay. That's right. That's right. Okay. And we have to be really careful in the, in the hiring process um, that you do uh, the legal paperwork uh, the paperwork for being able to work legally in the U.S. separate from this export compliance paperwork. And we can get into that a little, a little bit later when we talk about strategies on handling export control within your company. So uh, the other, uh, besides blueprints and given, you know, the way information is sort of shared these days, if I have technical data about, let's say, some defense arms product, that we're manufacturing, let's say, part of it. Is that something that I have to control as well? So I think that's a good place to talk about the definition of technical data. Um, so technical data is any information required for the design, development, production, manufacture, maintenance, or modification of defense articles. Um, so it's pretty broad. Now, it doesn't include basic marketing information, form and function of your product. Um, and it's also important to know it doesn't include publicly available information. So, but it also notes that information that's on the internet isn't automatically considered public information. Um, things that are public information are you know, general scientific um, concepts, math concepts, engineering concepts, um, things you could find in a library, um, but not necessarily things that you would find on the internet. Okay. So, uh, I, you know, I, I remember a criminal case where the, uh, in this area, criminal prosecution of an individual who was a foreign national, and all they showed was, the proof was, that he downloaded the design file or something like that on the internet to his BlackBerry, believe it or not. This was in the days when you had Blackberries. And, um, and he was and he was outside the country at the time. He was also a foreign national. But that was their proof of the crime. Uh, I mean, it turned out he, he was a 
spy as well. But that was the act. Uh, and does that make sense to you in terms of uh, uh, the definitions and the types of exporting you're calling talking about? Obviously, you didn't have a license. Sure, and I, I think the liability on that on that end would be the person exporting, the person uploading the file. Um, he was uh, a foreign national in the U.S. He never should have had that information in the first place. Um, but it's the person who who gave him the information to where I would see export control culpability. Okay. So, um, and we hear another term, and I want to you know swing this by you as well, which is. Uh, controlled in other words there's information that has to be controlled so what does that mean in terms of uh, itar compliance sure so information is controlled um i don't our defense articles technical data and services associated with that are controlled when the underlying item appears on the itar's u.s munitions list which we talked about a moment ago um there's 21 categories um, all of these categories, um, actually, most of these categories have already been reviewed under export control reforms. So, considered critical military intelligence items have, has been moved over to the Commerce Department's list. Um, right now, uh, an important point of note, um, there are three additional categories that are being reviewed, um, categories one through three, and those are firearms. Um, and associated items. And so we can see some of those items being moved to the commerce list as well. Um, but when those items are controlled, that essentially means they're on the list and an item, a license is going to be needed unless a relevant exemption applies. So the USML contains what you would think of as the scarier equipment, um, tanks, certain firearms, um, armed vehicles, protective equipment, um, and also subsystems, um, radar, navigational systems, um, as well as certain parts and components that are specially designed to be used in these items. Um, now, there's very complicated catch and release analysis. Um, DDTC has some tools on their website to help you figure out if a part or component is subject to the U.S. munitions list and ITAR controls. Um, um, but that's what the, the term control means. Um, and also note that any furnishing of assistance um, uh, regarding an item on the ITAR to a foreign national is also going to be considered controlled, as is any advice um, or training to foreign military. So, and so training, very different. training services, oh, so training services, Colleen, would be to a foreign military would be subject to ITAR as a defense service then? Yes, yes, absolutely. So if you have a, a small defense contractor and they're providing some training to Jordanian forces, um, you will need a license for all of that. Now, the licensing that goes along with defense services um, is a little bit different from your traditional license. It's something called a technical assistance agreement, and that's actually a license. It allows for the back-and-forth exchange that you would see in a training scenario. Um, and they're more long-term. They, they can last up to I, I mean, I, we have handled uh, licensing, for example, for, you know, manufacturers of certain products. Um, we've not been, uh, I don't think we've handled uh, sort of an ongoing relationship type thing where there's training and other services being provided. That's why I asked that. 
So. Okay. Okay. Well, it's, it's interesting to do services because uh, DDT says DDTC system is really set up to handle um, the exchange of items, sort of not ongoing services. So some of these applications for technical assistance agreements can become quite involved. So how do people, so how do, let's say my company, we produce products that fall, we think within the ITAR and some we have without, how do we, um, how do we know and, and confirm whether our product or service is subject to the ITAR? Um, that's a good question because a lot of violations that we see with regard to the ITAR have to do with a miscategorization uh, or misclassification of your item. Um, so you really want to make sure you get this right. Um, and I think there's two options here. Um, you can submit a commodity jurisdiction request to DDTC, um, and they will tell you um, what your class, what your classification is, whether it's on the ITAR or it's not on the ITAR. And if it's on the ITAR, where it falls. Um, and you can also self-classify. Um, some companies have the staff, they have, and I would always recommend um, an engineer, someone in engineering, sit down with a lawyer because some of the um, terms with, uh, within the USML can be very complicated and technical. And I know as a lawyer, I've always found the need to uh, reach out to en- engineering staff and get their assistance um, to make sure the classification is correct. Um, what I would recommend most companies do is start out with an internal analysis, um, have your uh, engineering staff sit down with your legal team, try to figure out where your product lies. Um, when you submit a commodity jurisdiction request, um, DDTC is going to require that you submit an analysis of where you think your product lies. Um, so, so it's always a good idea to go with, go to them um, with a pretty good idea of what you think your classification is. Um, and that will also speed up the processing time. But I think most companies I've worked with, um, they'll start with doing that internal analysis, but they like the reassurance of um, having the State Department sign off on their classification. So down the road, if there's any question, you can show the piece of paper and say, you guys agreed with our classification. Um, so I think that just minimizes the risk and making sure you get it right. Okay, great. So then after, so now I, we figured out which of our products or services are subject to the ITAR. Then what, what happens after that? What do we have to do then next? So all manufacturers, exporters, and temporary importers, uh, and also brokers of ITAR defense articles and furnishers of defense services are required to register with DDTC. Um, and this is something that trips up a lot of companies, especially small companies, um, because you're required to register regardless of whether you have any intention of ever exporting your products or services. Um, so this can be a big burden. Um, right now, the registration fee is um, $2,250. Um, and um, there's many companies out there that don't realize they even need to register. But if you are manufacturing an item on the USML, you need to register whether or not you're going to export that item. Do you have any intention of uh, exporting that item? So what do you do? You realize you, you need to register. You go into DDT's web, CDTC's website, and you fill out the registration packet. Um, you pay the fee, um, and then you'll be getting receiving a letter from DDTC um, stating that you have 
certain compliance obligations. They expect you to stay um, well-versed with the rules and regulations, um, and they expect you to have a compliance program to ensure that you do not uh, engage in any unauthorized export activity. And they, there's a term I think you've mentioned to me before called empowered official. What is What does that mean? So every company that is registered with DDTC needs to appoint an empowered official. Now, the registration is signed by a senior officer of the company, and that person can certainly serve as an empowered official. Um, but usually that person will appoint at least one other person to be an empowered official, and that means that they have the ability to interact with the State Department on behalf of the company on export issues. They're also empowered to stop questionable export activity that they view within the company and bring it bring its management's attention for resolution. You need to be an empowered official to have access to DDTC's D-Trade system uh, so you can get on and uh, submit licenses and track licenses. Okay. And um, and that raises another question is when, so when do I, let's say I'm a manufacturer and I'm manufacturing my goods, I register, when do I need to get a license in addition to my registration? I would recommend getting a license in as far ahead of the business transaction as you can. License, license processing, especially when you're new to submitting licenses and DDTC um, is, you're, you're new to working with DDTC, um, a license application can take four to six weeks. Um, or even more, uh, depending on the item and depending on the complexity of the transaction. So, and I think that's a really important thing for a compliance official working with your business development team to see what's ahead. Um, you want to make sure that you send the message to your business development team that you're a partner in the business and you're not an obstacle. Um, unfortunately, when the compliance department does not find out about a transaction until the night before, the week before, sometimes the decision has to be uh, has to be no. Um, this is not uh, a transaction that we can go through with. We need a license. Um, hopefully, an exemption applies, but that's not always the case. Um, so, working with your business development teams to plan out as far ahead as possible is always a good idea. And a license is used for exports, uh, and also, does it apply to imports? It applies to temporary import. So, for example, if um, something needs to be repaired, if you export an item, it needs to come back in the United States to be repaired. Um, or if there's some sort of trade show, it's only going to be in the in the United States for a limited amount of time. DDTC does have jurisdiction over that. Okay. And you mentioned before uh, these types of there are certain types of agreements to provide defense services or something like that. Are those subject to approval as well? Do you get a license for that or do you submit the agreement for approval? How does that work? So it's a little confusing. So when you engage in a traditional export, you're sending an item over, you get a license called a DSP-5, um, generally speaking, other types of licenses. Um, but when you're providing services uh, or there's an ongoing exchange of technical data, 
you get what we call a technical assistance agreement. Now, the technical assistance agreement is actually a license. Um, but in order to apply for the technical assistance agreement, you have to upload it through DDTC's system using a DSP-5. Um, so the, but you're right, the agreement itself is actually the license. Um, and there's standard, there's some standard language. Um, the company will fill in parts of it with regard to um, end user and the item that is at issue, that could be at issue and the technical data that could be at issue. Um, but there are um, technical assistance guidelines, uh, technical assistance agreement guidelines on the DDT website that are helpful. Thanks, Colleen. Um, who does uh, ITAR apply to? So the ITAR is extraterritorial. Uh, it applies to U.S. persons and companies, but it also follows the defense article. Uh, and this means that all companies in the supply chain need to be cognizant of ITAR requirements. For example, company A in the U.S may have approval to sell certain ITAR navigational systems to company B in Singapore, but company B cannot then retransfer that system to any other entity, even within Singapore, unless the relevant exemption applies. Uh, that would be an unauthorized re-export. Um, so it's always helpful to put ITAR language within your contract terms um, when you're selling an item or service, um, ensure that the entity that you're selling it to understands their obligations um, with respect not to retransferring that to any other entity. One one thing I wanted to ask you about was, um, and we've heard that uh, DTTC is moving to a new computer system, and you've mentioned that to me before for licensing. Is that supposedly um, going to be implemented in the near future, and what benefits do you see from that? I think that's going to have great benefits to the compliant export compliance community. Um, right now, we're working on a number of different systems. Um, D-Trade, the electronic filing system, Mary's, there are just a lot of different systems that you need to keep track of. Uh, and D-Trade is one of those systems that you can only use on a Windows uh, operating system. So I have, when I was submitting uh, a lot of export control licenses, I had a Mac computer for work, uh, but I also had a separate PC that was just for submitting applications um, to the State Department. Um, so they're going to modernize that. They're going to put everything on one system. Um, right now, uh, it's called DEX, um, the Defense Export uh, Compliance uh, I can't remember the, the, the other one, but it's called, it's referred to as DEX. Right now it's being used, and I think quite successfully, for commodity jurisdiction requests. Um, but eventually we're going to be able to use the system to do registration and also licensing. Okay. And that's, and that's slated for this year, is what you're saying? That is, that's slated for this year. Um, CDTC is very good about providing updates. Um, on the DEX system, and they have periodic webinars, I think, um, I think quarterly. Um, so that's, if that's something that um, is of interest, you, you should check out the DDTC website. Okay. So as a compliance professional, let's say, in this area, how do you go about designing and implementing an effective uh, ITAR compliance program? And I realize that's a broad question. So just, you know, sort of, you know... Okay. From a high-level view, how do you do that? 
Sure. Well, like other compliance areas, you start by assessing your risk. Um, so what are your ITAR controlled products and services? Do you have international operations? Do you have foreign nationals on your team? Um, do you work with a lot of DOD contracts? Um, ITAR compliance programs need to minimize the likelihood of potential violations. And you want to be able to show DDTC that you've taken reasonable steps to ensure unauthorized exports don't occur. Um, you know, there's no one-size-fits-all program. Um, generally speaking, companies should design tailored controls for identifying items and data subject to ITAR, licensing for relevant transactions and processes, and adherence to licensing conditions and applicable regulations. Um, it's going to be different for every company. Um, and no compliance program is perfect. I think compliance program, if there's one thing I've learned in doing this um, for 15 years, it's that compliance programs change over time, and they should change over time. Um, you set up a program that you think is going to be successful, and you realize, um, well, we, we're handling most of our issues, but not all of our issues, and you're going to learn from your mistakes. Um, and DDTC expects you to make mistakes. And I think there's also the expectation when you make mistakes that you report it to DDTC. Um, and there is a voluntary disclosure process with DDTC that when you do make those mistakes, um, it can help minimize um, likelihood of penalties. And do they have, um, have they put out, has uh, the State Department put out guidance or made statements in terms of what their expectations are with respect to compliance programs? They do not, unlike, unlike the, uh, some of the other compliance areas, there aren't specific this is what we expect from your compliance program. Um, they expect you not to violate the ITAR, um, which you know, in practice, I think, again, it's that you're taking reasonable steps based on your risk to ensure unauthorized exports don't take place. Um, companies should have a written compliance program, although DDCC uh, is sees right through when that is the only part of your compliance program that it, there is. They don't like to see just paper programs. Um, they want a program that includes tracking, monitoring, um, regular audits um, of defense items, services, and technical data. Um, with technical data, it's also a good idea to uh, mark all of your technical data as controlled um, so there's an awareness around um, what can be seen by uh foreign persons and what can't. Um, and also note that there's, they do have expectations with regard to record keeping. And this is in the ITAR itself. Um, there's stringent rec record keeping. You need to keep track of all of your licenses, your registrations, your use of exemptions um, for a period of five years. Um, and they do periodically uh, have company visits where they will come in, um, sometimes announce, sometimes not, um, and ask to see your records. So they actually go out into the field and do audits themselves, the, the, the staff? Yes. And, and usually you will get, you will get, in my experience, you, you will get some notice, some notice of that. Um, but they do it at that, when you get that notice, you won't have a lot of time to prepare. So you'll want to make sure that all of your export files are kept in one location, that you're not having to go out to different offices to locate licenses and and be able to show what exports took place. 
And uh, the penalties for violations in this area, what are what are those like? What, what's your perception of those? Uh, they are very steep. Um, and there's also personal liability associated with violations, not just corporate liability. Um, there's civil fines, and now these were just uh, raised uh, in 2018. Um, so the civil penalties are a little over a million per violation. Criminal penalties, a million per violation, and or 10 years of imprisonment. Um, debarment, loss of export privileges, the corporate death penalty, we call it. Um, and, of course, there's the potential loss of business um, uh, based on reputational risk. And um, I noticed, and I think I wrote about this on the blog, there was a case where uh, in last year where they actually imposed a sort of monitorship requirement. Uh, and this was done not at the Justice Department, but done at the uh, regulatory level. And that uh, seems yeah. to be something that they do in pretty egregious cases. Yes, yes. So, so for systems, there was a $30 million civil penalty um, for transferring data, uh, U.S. mail data, to dual national employees. Um, and it shows the breakdown just didn't have controls in place. Um, and part of their penalty required um, that they hire an outside official to oversee their agreement with the State Department. Uh, and, of course, it was at their own expense. So this can be quite expensive. Um, and, you know, this, there's, no, there's, no, uh, there's no out for small companies. DDTC enforces these policies with regard to or these regulations with regard to both small and large companies alike. Um, and the bottom line is mistakes can be really costly in this area. Um, if you determine your products and services are ITAR regulated, it's a good idea to invest in compliance, whether that's hiring your own internal staff or using outside help to help you understand your risk and develop a, an adequate um, tailored compliance program. And I've, uh, we've represented uh, clients in voluntary disclosures, uh, voluntary self-disclosures, which you mentioned. And there is a pretty, you know, rigorous process around that. And it's um, pretty well run, at least from my experience. Um, and is that something uh, you mentioned earlier? There, there are a lot of benefits to that. And do you, and, and do, you, uh, do you definitely see companies that participate in that? program? Yes, absolutely. Um, I've performed a number of uh, voluntary disclosures um, for companies, and they are there's requirements to submitting what that disclosure should look like. Um, you need to notify the State Department um, immediately when you suspect there should there could be when you have reasonable belief um, that there could be an issue. Um, so you file an initial notification and then you have um, about six months to um, to do a full investigation, um, and they expect that you fully investigated what happened and developed um, remedial actions um, that will ensure that that kind of violation does not occur again. Um, the issue that I've, I'm seeing with the State Department that I'm not seeing at the Department of Commerce right now is voluntary disclosures. There's a tremendous backlog, um, which is really not being helped by this government shutdown. Um, so I, I had one disclosure that uh, languished for about a year and a half, um, and I know there's others that go on much longer. 
Um, so that's just something to keep in mind. Yes, you can make the disclosure. Um, and a lot of times they will, they will work with you on satisfying your license requirements um, as you work through that disclosure. So you don't interrupt your ability to acquire new licenses and that you can keep um, exporting and engaging in your business activity while you're uh, making the disclosure to DDTC and uh, fixing your compliance issues. Wow, that's a, that's a really long time. And I guess it's really even more important because, look, these are your regulators. And so you need licenses from them going forward. And it's, you know, you depend on the this. So it's it's an issue where voluntary disclosure is almost, uh, you know, a mandatory disclosure, uh, you know, if you want to maintain a positive relationship with them. Yeah, I think it depends on, on the uh, export issue that you have. Um, if there's minor record issues, now I do know companies who feel more comfortable disclosing every time there is any kind of uh, problem with their export control system, and there could possibly be export control activity. But export or voluntary disclosures are are voluntary, um, right. so it's really up to the company to decide. Um, what, what is necessary and what, what is in, um, their interest. Um, there are, I should point out also, there are certain mandatory disclosures. For example, if you, uh, export an item to a prohibited country, a 126.1 country, um, those are mandatory, um, disclosures. So there's no discretion there, but for the most part, disclosures are voluntary in nature. Right. Well, that's good. That's good to know too. That there, yeah, it's good to know that there's some mandatory as well. That makes total sense too. Um, okay, let's a uh, couple. Uh, we're gonna close off here in a little bit, but um, we have to at least uh, get your sort of key practice points if you're gonna boil down, you know, a lot of your suggestions throughout this uh, podcast. What would you say are your sort of you know top let's say, you know, seven, eight list of key takeaways. Okay, so key takeaways or uh, or practice pointers, I'll call them. Um, so know your export classifications. Um, if if you we don't have that right, you'll have problems down the road. So I think that's, that's the main thing you want to start with. Um, also, ensure that uh, you know your customer, and I know this. This is the same for other compliance issues as well. FCPA, um, know your customer and know the end use of your item. Always screen your customers in advance of a business transaction or making a license application. Really, I, it could be pretty embarrassing to apply to export an item to a, a person or an entity that is prohibited, um, because certainly that'll that'll come up in the State Department. Uh, review of the transaction. Um, hold your business partner, your business partners accountable for export control compliance. Um, make sure you have contract terms um, in your business deals that ensure that your partners will understand export control compliance. Hire internal staff or utilize outside help um, well-versed in the ITAR and other export control regulations. Um, and make sure you work closely with HR so that they understand the foreign nationals um, issue we discussed with regard to deemed exports. Um, and this can be um, 
delicate issue because no one likes to have to tell their employee you're not eligible to work on that project because of your nationality. Um, HR, I found HR departments, um, depending on the company, can be very resistant to that. Um, and train your personnel. Um, train, train, train. Some employees, depending on their roles, will need uh, more training than others. Um, make business development teams a priority. Um, HR, contract administration makes also be higher priorities. Um, and lastly, um, like I said before, work with your business development team to plan in advance for exports. Um, and I think what this, the current government shutdown right now is showing um, that you need to plan well ahead of time. Um, because right now there's a, uh, no licenses are being approved unless um, they're emergency in nature. And uh, business deals not going through is not considered an emergency from the State Department's perspective. Um, so work with your development team, business development teams. Um, have good relationships with them. Make sure they understand that you're a partner and you're not an obstacle to the business. Um, get their buy-in. Um, and, and lastly, um, Micah, I think it, you pointed out in your recent blog post, um, trade compliance fits squarely within the ethics and compliance bucket. Um, many things that companies are already doing to ensure FCPA compliance, like training and tracking products and audits, um, they can be utilized to manage your trade compliance. So leverage what you have and um, reach out for help where you need to. Yeah. No, no, that's, uh, no, I feel pretty strongly that these functions should be all merged together. It makes no sense to have separate silos. And I, but I understand that ITAR is specialized and I get that. But that doesn't mean that you can't get the benefits of certain, you know, general compliance uh, strategies and personnel and resources. Uh, should, there's no way you should duplicate some of that. So anyways, I, but I have to ask you now to uh, take out your crystal ball. And in terms of ITAR and export compliance for this upcoming year, assuming the government comes back to life, which I think it will in the next few weeks, um, what do you see? What's on the horizon in terms of issues that people should be uh, tracking? Okay. Well, I hope you're right on that and the government shut down um, because I think this has been a very frustrating time for the export community um, with both uh, licensing functions at commerce and state um, temporarily suspended. Um, so uh, their systems are inaccessible. Um, their counselors are unreachable. Um, and that's been a pretty frustrating experience. Um, but, but as to what's next, um, IT modernization, um, and, and I think it's great that the State Department is doing this, and I think this is a long time coming. Um, as I said, keep an eye out for DDTC webinars. Um, we can tr try using DEX for commodity jurisdiction requests. Um, eventually, we'll be able to use, the, use it for licensing and registration, um, and it'll replace previous systems, which will be a big help. Um, the biggest thing that I see on the horizon for export control at the State Department in, um, in 2019 um, is the revision to categories one through three on the USML. And those are uh, firearms, uh, armament, ordnance. Um, those, these are the last categories to be reviewed as a part of export control reform that was started under the Obama administration. Um, now, these categories are going to be um, revised so that many of the items, not all, but many of them are going to be moved over to the Commerce Department Commerce Control List. 
Now, this won't alleviate the licensing burden, um, but it will alleviate uh, registration burden for some manufacturers um, because there's no intention to export. And if their item is on the CCL, it's the U.S. mail, they don't need to register. They won't need, going forward, they won't need to register um, with DDTC. Um, so I think that's going to be probably the big thing for 2019, and it's something that folks in the firearms industry want to keep an eye on. And uh, this this uh, podcast was intended to be a ITAR 101 basics, just uh, covering the uh, elementary. But if your listeners are interested in other topics, I'm happy to follow on with uh, more in-depth podcasts. Well, that would be great. That would be great, Colleen, because I know you and I have been talking about doing this for a while. And, um, you know, I'm hoping that um, this will be helpful to people who are dealing with ITAR issues. And obviously your expertise is uh, great for clients at the firm. And obviously uh, you are more than knowledgeable. You're uh, also experienced. So, um if people, uh, a listener wants to reach out to you, what's the best way to contact you to discuss any of these issues? Well, thanks, Mike. Um, my email address is cherson, that's C-H-U-R-S-O-N, at volkovlaw.com. Um, so reach out. I'm happy to answer any questions that uh, your listeners may have. Okay, Colleen, thank you so much, and uh, we appreciate it, and we'll have you back if, uh, obviously, the firearms issue uh, boils up a little bit. That may be interesting, uh, and we'll have you back to sort of update everybody on uh, what's going on. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkoff Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. At Ethical Companies, employees believe in the company, they feel vested, and are more productive. As a result, misconduct rates are much lower and financial performance is higher. We can help you achieve these benefits through an effective ethics and compliance program. You can learn more about our commitment to effective ethics and compliance programs at our website, www.bocoplaw.com, our award-winning blog, Corruption Crime Compliance, and our new podcast series. You can contact me at my email address, mbocoplaw.com. Let us know how we can help you achieve your